Welcome to Unstuck AF, a podcast here to help you do you better. There's a path that starts where you are, passes through who you are, and leads where you want to go. We're here to hear from people who've walked that path or who are walking it right now. This is Orlando Bishop, Coach Orlando, and I thank you for listening as we learn how to get unstuck, how to be unstuck, how to live unstuck. Unstuck as fuck. Welcome to Unstuck AF, and uh, I know I always say I'm so thankful for the guests and and people who've meant so much to me, but I remember driving across the country and listening to this podcast, which I hadn't listened to a lot of these things called podcasts yet, uh, called Startup School, and being just blown out of the water, uh, not just by information, because there's information everywhere, but I kept saying to Daphne, my wife, man, this dude is smart. Like, I just, <laughs> man, this dude is smart. You know, like, how's he connected the restaurant in Queens and the, but I, I'm getting it. I'm, you know, and so I've just been a fan ever since and I've listened to books and I've watched YouTube videos and finally had a chance, uh, to meet Seth when I took the podcasting workshop, uh, which Nadine Kelly, who you've all met, asked me to, to, to join in on. And it's just been, uh, a real pleasure. So just welcome to Unstuck AF, you know, say hello to our audience. Well, I'm saying hello to you because I can't see the audience, but I'm so grateful for the work you're doing. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate that. So I'm going to ask a question that I probably began back when I was listening to Startup School, but some other, some other stories I've heard from you bring me back to it. And it is this. How and or when did you realize how important it is that you are the owner of the most expensive T-shirt I'm aware of in human history. You know, I was talking about this this morning, literally this morning. So I think one of the ways we can measure whether we are leaning in enough to the opportunities that are in front of us is how big are the mistakes we're making. And Hmm. usually these are not the mistakes of commission, because that means you're just a sort of a jerk. I'm not talking about the mistakes of offending someone, hurting someone, treating them without dignity. I'm talking about what did you miss? What were the the at-bats you could have taken where you didn't? And uh, I had two really big ones mm-hmm. in the 1990s, and I'll tell you about both of them. The first one is the one you're talking about, which is mm-hmm. the t-shirt. So I was a book packager. Book packagers are like movie producers, but for books. I did complicated books that a typical author wouldn't take on. Okay. And when I saw the internet coming, and I saw it coming before almost anyone for a whole <laughs> bunch of reasons, uh, I said, oh, I should make a book about it. And so I sold a book to a book publisher, and it was called Best in the Net. Mm-hmm. And it went on to sell 1,800 copies. And I made a t-shirt for the sales force to promote it. I still have one of those t-shirts left. That t-shirt cost me about $40 billion. (laughs) Because if instead of making a book about the internet, I had made Yahoo, which Mm -hmm. was a website about the internet, 
my half would have been worth $40 billion. I love it. Well, the other part of the story is in 1995, I, as a book packager, created a book called Presenting Digital Cash, the very first book, I believe, on digital currency. And um, again, if I had taken just a thousand dollars of the advance and bought Bitcoin with it, mm. that's another 20, 30, 40 billion dollars right there. But all I have is one copy left of this book instead. Wow. So obviously that was a, a, a bit tongue in cheek. I, I, I knew the punchline there, but I'd love to dig into how you're able to have that conversation to realize, oh, that's an at-bat that maybe cost me $40 billion. There's an at-bat that cost... And you seem to have what I would describe as such a healthy, almost... It almost seems like amused tone in discussing it. And I know at different points in my life, the things that have gone wrong have really you know, weighed on me. And I feel like, oh my goodness. And every time things aren't going well, it's like, eh, it's way back there with the $40 billion t-shirt. I screwed it all up then. What... Uh, enables you to to be able to work in this way, uh, where you're able to say, "Yes, that's an at bat that I did that I missed. Lesson learned. Moving on." I think we need to distinguish between existential crises and the narratives we make up about the other sorts. Mm-hmm. So, an existential crisis is: I don't have a roof over my head. My safety is in danger. My family is under threat. And there are too many people in this world who are facing existential crises. And I would never make light of any of them. Right. That doesn't help us. It's serious. It really matters. And we need to focus on that. But, and it's a big but, I'm a game designer from way back. If you're going to play a game, you got to get good at buzzer management. And mm-hmm. buzzer management is the art of pressing the buzzer just before you know the answer. Because if you wait till you know the answer, someone's going to buzz you out. And if you want to get good at any game, in mm-hmm. real life or not, mm-hmm. you got to get good at the buzzer. Hmm. And you can't get good at the buzzer if you're going to ha- get hung up about crises that aren't existential. So the fact is, someone paid me $50,000 to write a book about the internet that took me four months of my life. What a treat. Right. And yeah, it also cost me $40 billion, but at least I pressed the buzzer. I have failed more times than you, more times than anybody listening to this. I'm super proud of that. I am winning because I am failing generously more than other people once I got my existential crises out of the way. Mm-hmm. But if you had asked me to make light of the fact that I got 800 book rejections in a row mm-hmm. when I was starting out in the book business, when I was days away from having to go get a job as a bank teller, right? I don't usually make light of that. That's not Because so that, that felt different. Yeah. No, 100% hearing that. You absolutely strike me not only as someone who presses the buzzer, but someone who encourages and maybe even prepares others to press the buzzer. I would say in some ways you've done that for me. And I feel like I've moved my own business. You know, this this podcast we're on didn't exist uh, when, our, when our paths first crossed. Where would you say that comes from, from for you, that, that impulse to push the buzzer? There are other people I'm sure who also thought, oh, I should write a book, but they didn't do what it took to get that $50,000 advance. Where, where, did that, where does that spring from? I'll answer the second half first. I mm-hmm. learned how to turn on lights for other people from my parents. Mm-hmm. Uh, I clearly won the parent lottery. And remember, they sponsored more than two dozen Russian refugees back in the 70s who had been fleeing the Soviet Union. Um, it was just normal for stuff like that to be going on in my house. Right. And I just grew up thinking that's what you're supposed to do if you can. Mm-hmm. 
the buzzer management thing came from understanding early on, I think all of us know early on, sort of what we'd like to be able to do. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I wanted to do was be on this quiz team at, in high school. Hmm. And we didn't have a quiz team, so I organized it. And I found this, the, the teacher to be the sponsor. It was a new school. Every other school had a quiz team. And then we did tryouts, and I came in last. And I came in last because I was terrible at buzzer management. Mm. And I still, every time Sheldon Pressman said the answer, I knew what he was going to say, but he was better at the buzzer. And what mm. I realized is if I want to have the life of leading, publishing, speaking up, making a difference, I got to be prepared to press the buzzer, even though I'm not exactly sure the answer. So mm. imposter syndrome is the feeling we get when we're leading. Because you can't be sure you're right. Because mm. if you were sure you're right, you wouldn't be leading. You'd be following. Right. Because somebody else would already be, they already pressed the buzzer by that time. I love that piece. And imposter syndrome, as you hear people, you hear people talking about that a lot, I feel like over the last couple of years. And there's something you talk about that has helped me in facing uh, imposter syndrome and the impact that it sometimes has on me, which is ship. The importance yeah of shipping. And I will confess to you that I said that by 7 a.m. Eastern time, this podcast was going to go out. And let me promise you, there was some bleary-eyed 357 moments, but I was like, this episode is going to ship. I would love for you to share some of your thoughts on the importance of shipping, but also, again, sort of what helps you to continue that drive where where you ship because I I can now even more closely see you doing things and know that you can't possibly know the next 10 steps. You have just decided that's the direction you're headed in. So just, yeah, curious to hear a little bit more about that. So you didn't make the Nike mistake, which I appreciate, but I need to clarify it anyway. Nike has a slogan, uh, just do it. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. people don't understand what they mean when they say just. Just ship it. What the hell? Put out crap. That's not what we're talking about. Right, right. Just means merely, without Mm -hmm. drama, Mm -hmm. without a lot of, uh, imposter syndrome, merely do this work you already said you wanted to do. So my philosophy is, if you don't want to lead, don't lead. If mm-hmm. you don't want to make a contribution, don't make a contribution. But if you do, mm-hmm. if you're the kind of person saying, I have a business in me, I have a book in me, I have an organization I want to start in me, if you're going to say it, you got to do it. And as soon as you say it, you got to put a date and a time on it. Yes. When that date and time comes along, you ship the work without mm-hmm. drama, without a lot of catastrophe, because you said you would. Yeah. And if you start that cycle, you will start to become coherent. You will start to become consistent in what you say and what you do. Because right. so much unhappiness comes from saying you want one thing, but doing a different thing that doesn't get you that thing. Right. Now you're, you're describing in, in some ways a very important concept in my life, alignment and having, right? Having that piece of what you're saying, who you're being, where you're going, all, all sort of line up. When you speak to the where and the when, I speak, or when you spoke, sorry, to having that date and time on it, I speak to people about every how, the thing they're going to do, having a where and a when. And in yeah. part, that being a way to over, to avoid overwhelm, which I really, yeah. I see as, just trying to process too much information at any given time, right? And that helps me to say, oh, it's the 6th. It is 12.45 my time. I am speaking to Seth. This is not the time for me to be sorting out my marketing plan. 
What are some of the ways in which you're able to do that? Because I know just from a distance that you're juggling and I would love for you to even speak to some of the work you're doing now specifically around environment and you're, you know, you just, you're doing a ton. Um, and yeah, how do you manage that? And how would you advise others to manage it so they don't slide into overwhelm and they do have what you just described? You know, it's very interesting to watch people, particularly people who have grown up with so much abundance, go to a buffet. For a lot of people, it's overwhelming because they want everything they can't have. For some people, they deal with it by just getting what they think of as the greatest hits. So they walk out of the buffet with the big pile of shrimp because they think that they're getting a, a big value, right? Mm-hmm, they're not mm-hmm. going to enjoy their dinner. They just feel like they won dinner. Right, right. And what the internet has done is given us all this buffet. This buffet of information, this buffet of opportunities. Should you be on TikTok? Should you be on Twitter? Should you be reading this? Should you be writing that? And I think the single best way to deal with it is to have rules. The rules should be based on what do you want? So mm-hmm. in my case, I don't use social media. I haven't posted on Facebook in years and years and years. I don't have a YouTube channel that I actively use. I don't actively tweet because I said, if I start doing those things, mm-hmm. it's only worth doing them if I'm going to be really good at it. But if I'm going to be really good at it, what am I going to stop being good at? And so figuring out your choices before Mm -hmm. they get too shiny Mm. is at the heart of this. Because the number of people who want to seduce you into going into debt to buy this or to get that credit card or to work overtime to get this and to work overtime, the next thing you know, you've carved out all the parts of your life you said were important Mm because there was a shiny thing over there. So what I learned... The hard way as an entrepreneur, when I was a book packager, I could have written a book about anything. I had 10 employees. We had the ability to pitch any one of 30 publishers every single day. We had to say, no, we're not going to make a book about astrology. Mm-hmm. We could make a book about astrology. Someone might buy a book about astrology, but we don't want to make a book about astrology. That's not what we're doing. Yeah. And th- mo- most of the people I know who have freedom have trouble making that freedom count by putting up boundaries to make mm. it work. That's really that that's incredibly powerful. As we're as we're talking about those choices, it seems a choice you've often made is around generosity. It seems to be a driver for you that when you put yourself in a position where not only are you ex- doing X, but that it could be benefiting and ripples happening. As we're looking at grief, dealing with the challenges that, you know, the story of the t-shirt and what have you, how have you dealt with that piece, community in that piece, generosity in that piece, either in how you've navigated those moments where you didn't take the at-bat or it didn't work out or in how you've engaged others when the same has happened for them? Well, first, let me clarify, because you understand, but a lot of people listening might think that generosity means free or giving stuff away. Right, right, and right, right. There, there are variations of generosity that involve that. Mm-hmm. But generosity for me is the emotional labor of connecting with other people, giving them dignity, and helping them get to where they want to go. And if you can do that for a living, you know, a, a doctor who's a great heart surgeon, she's not giving you the heart surgery for free. Right. The heart surgery costs a lot, but she's bringing an emotional labor to it that makes her better than the other heart surgeon, mm-hmm. right? That's mm-hmm. generous work too. Got it. So in my case, I um, have been really privileged and lucky to be able to make most of my work an art project in the sense that, you know, the new book, uh, the, the Climate, the Carbon Almanac, 
I didn't write this. I coordinated it. It's been my full-time job. Today is the first anniversary of starting the project. Actually. Oh, wow. And, Congratulations. Uh, you know, I didn't get a penny from working on this for a year. I got way more than that. And I can afford to do that because I, you know, I'll give a couple speeches. It'll be all right. Mm-hmm. But I get to go do the speeches because I'm the kind of person that would organize the almanac. Right. And so it's the decision to be on a frontier that mm. allows me to make my living doing other things. Mm. And, but the same thing is true if you're an insurance broker in town, right? If you're an insurance broker in town, yeah, you could probably hustle and do five more sales calls a week. Or you could coach the Little League team, let the, uh, the Girl Scouts use your office for their meetings, and be a member of the school board. You're not doing those things because you're going to sell more insurance. You're doing those things because you're in the community. But mm-hmm. if you're in the community, I'm guessing you're going to sell more insurance. That's right. Now now you're not just some person on a list. You're Seth who let us use the office when we needed something for the Little League. Got it. Got it. Got it. Got it. Now, some people who are listening are going to be listening to this on their drive or on their treadmill run or whatever it is. And they've had this idea... But, you know, who am I? I don't have the money mm-hmm. for it. I don't have this for it. I don't have that for it. And it's almost the anticipated grief of I might try and fail. How would you speak to them about taking that step, you know, managing the buzzer correctly and, and, and getting in there? Yeah. Okay. So first, a, a shout out to Steve Pressfield. His book, War of Art, is so important. He named resistance. And resistance takes many, many forms. Okay. But... The mostly the easiest way to understand it is anything that keeps you from accomplishing your creative work is the result of resistance. It's writer's block, it's distraction, it's becoming an alcoholic. All of these things, we invent anything to protect ourselves from that soft spot. Wow. The kind of person you're talking about is looking for a perfect, original, creative idea. And I would like to say there's no such thing. Right. And they should not begin with that. Right. You should begin with an idea you copy from someone else. Hmm. You should begin with something that is completely unoriginal. Orlando should not invent podcasting. Right. You should right. wait until there's 400 podcasts. Find the best three elements of them and make your podcast. Yeah. There's no existential risk in that. Podcasting isn't going to go away as an art form because you did it. Right. Right. So if you've been sitting there with your secret idea that you can't tell other people about, that you're Mm. too worried to launch, that's resistance. That's you creating a perfect trap for yourself. And I have been stuck in a trap like that for years Mm. on various projects. Okay. Until finally you have to say, this is going in the trash. I know why I'm stuck. I'm stuck because I want to be stuck. And if you really don't want to get stuck, go do the simplest, most generous, easiest to fail thing you can think of. Something that you can start on Tuesday and be done with on Wednesday. Go to your neighbor's garage, ask them if they, if you can sell three things that they have on eBay and split the money. Nothing to stop you from doing that. Right. And right. you're going to make 500 bucks and you're not. Right. And if it doesn't work, you didn't sell anything. And if it does work, you just made 500 bucks in an hour. Right. Now go do it again. And now go do it again. And I was talking to Barney, my neighbor. He's 16. Maybe hmm. he'll start this business. Because Right. He's got, he was brainwashing the thing. You can't start a business unless it's original and you're Mark Zuckerberg. Right. And I'm like, that's nonsense. And even Facebook wasn't original, but that's a whole other story. 
Right. We do get into that trap and this idea of, you know, the genius, right? The, the, that, that entrepreneurial genius who, and I, I like that simplicity of just getting it, getting it started. Now there's the person who has tried A, B, or C. I'm somewhere around M, maybe X, depending on who you ask. <laughs> but you know, we keep, we keep pressing the buzzer, but there are these moments where, you know, you sit in the rubble, unfortunately, and go, well, that didn't go according to plan. How do you manage that piece? And I'm going to describe it as grief because although it's not losing a loved one, I definitely, sure. you know, have been at the end of a a project or business that I started and it is, it, it's a loss. It's a, it's painful. Um, how have you managed that? Helped others manage that? What would you share that a lot, again, allows them to tell their $40 billion t-shirt story? Yeah. I, you know, I think there's a spectrum. There's not an absolute here. When I sold my company, my first company, there was family stuff too, but it took me months and months and months to get mm-hmm. over Because I lost mm-hmm. my whole working family. They just all disappeared. Right. On the other hand, when I write a blog post and people don't understand it, it doesn't bother me for even two seconds. Mm. It's like, oh, okay. I got off the bat. <clears throat> so what I try to do is imagine for a second what it was like to be Miles Davis. So mm. when Miles was doing gigs in the 50s, he got paid enough money if it was a live gig to pay for dinner and maybe a little bit more. And if he made an album, the record label paid for the recording session. Right. And then you make Kind of Blue, which is the best-selling jazz record of all time. Mm-hmm. And you can't make Kind of Blue unless you made five records before that that just broke even. All the time you're spending mourning the records that didn't work is time mm-hmm. you're not getting yourself ready to make Kind of Blue. I love that. And so for me... When I was in, starting out as a, a, an entrepreneur, I realized that I had to send out between 20 and 30 book ideas to sell one. Mm. And mm. so if someone wrote back a thoughtful no, that counted as, okay, that's one of the 30. Thank you. I'm one step closer to the next idea, which will get me a yes. Sure. And, you know, Bob Dylan made more than 50 records, way more than half of which are below average. But he doesn't right. know before he goes in whether it's going to be Oh Mercy or one of the clunkers. You just don't mm-hmm. know. So you got to make the album. And if a record label is going to pay for it along the way, congratulations. You have to do it again. That feels like it, it bumps right into the always be testing, which has been, a, a, again, an important one for me because I, I did weave myself or lock myself in that trap that we talked about. I was like, oh, but wait, but what happens in year three when this happens? Have I figured that all out? When you're going into the metaphorical studio and deciding to play, where's your where's your focus at that time? I mean, like you said, every album can't be kind of blue, but then I think you still have to go into the studio and give your all, or you pretty much yeah. guaranteed you'll never get kind of blue. How, how do you look at all that as you're working on projects? You know, in Buddhism, they talk about attachment. Mm-hmm. And attachment is attachment to an outcome that is out of your control. Mm-hmm. If you are spending your conscious emotional time trying to control things that are out of your control. One reason you're doing it is to avoid controlling things that are in your control. Mm -hmm. So my job when I sit down to write a book or a blog post or make a podcast or whatever is I am attached in a good way to making this the best version of it I can imagine. But my work goes so much better if I am not willing a stranger to get it. I'm not willing the world Mm. 
to be where it needs to be because I've tried telekinesis for many years. It doesn't work. I can't get you to do what I want you to do. All I can do is make the very best version of this that I can in this moment. That doesn't mean I ignore the person it's for. Mm -hmm. It means I imagine the person it's for, what that person can encounter that might work, and then I try to create that. But once it's done, it's in the world. Mm-hmm. And now it's not mine anymore. It's theirs. And whatever happens to it, happens to it. And spending cycles to force that to be something it's not. Mm-hmm. And I think what people will hear if they're listening to this is, it doesn't just work for writing a book. It works for the person you're going to date on Saturday night, too. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I'm hearing. It's an approach to life as much as it's an approach to work. I'm definitely hearing that piece. So curious to, for, from you, where are where are you now in terms of that person you're trying to reach? I mean, you 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 you've done the work. Um, you know, I, as I shared, I, I talked to some folks who were working on that project with you and getting that project done. Didn't know it was the anniversary, so that worked out nicely. Um, but when you imagine the person you're trying to reach, um, I'm taking the alt MBA in October. I'm excited about that, and obviously that was you know your, some of your great work. Who do you envision and has that shifted over time? Have you learned, oh, I thought I was going to reach A. It turns out I'm reaching more of B. I'm just curious about that thought process. So there's a difference between demographics and psychographics. Mm -hmm. Demographics used to be really important. They are, what does someone look like? How much money do they make? What kind of car do they drive? How many kids do they have? What can I learn from their census data? And the reason that was important is it's all we had. And now psychographics are important. What Mm -hmm. does this person dream of? What do they desire? What are they afraid of? We can't tell that at all from what you do for a living or how much money you make. And so what we see is if we can show up and say, for people who dream of this and for people who believe that this, this thing I made is going to help them get to where they want to go. That is the mantra I am trying to use when I am showing up with a new project. Mm-hmm. So the Alt-MBA isn't for people who might have gone to Harvard Business School. Because if you're the kind of person that says it's worth $250,000 in two years of my life to get a piece of paper that proves I'm better than everybody else, I can't compete with that, right? right. And right. I, just to be clear, I don't run the Alt-MBA anymore. But if you're the kind of person who doesn't need that, but deeply wants to change the way you do things Yes, and is willing to spend money, but not a stupid amount of money, this might be the kind of thing that's going to help you get there. Mm -hmm. And when people started saying, well, are you accredited? You don't try to waffle and say, well, you say, damn straight, we're not. Because (laughs) the kind of person you're trying to reach doesn't want you to be accredited. Right. And so, you know, with with the Carbon Almanac, People said, well, will this help my Neanderthal next door neighbor who thinks we should dig every drop of oil out of the ground and kill every cow we can with it so we can eat them? I'm like, no, it's not going to help them one bit because yeah. they're not looking for what we got. And if someone said, what about the person who has uh, environmental credentials out the wazoo and knows everything? No, mm-hmm. it's not for them either mm-hmm. because they aren't somebody who has a lock with this key will open. But we made a key for those locks. Right. If that's the kind of lock you're dealing with, here's the key. 
And it's really easy if you're a locksmith to sell your services to someone who's locked out of their house. And it's impossible mm. to sell your services to someone who's not. Right. Now, to play with that metaphor a little bit, I know I've I've been in this position where I, I had the, the opportunity to do the marketing seminar and some things that have clarified my thinking some. But I hear it too, where we want to be the locksmith who has the master key. We want to yeah. be the like, oh, no, no, no. Whatever it is you're looking to accomplish in life. And another thing that I've noticed, your ability to say, yeah, no, no. If uh, you want a certificate, this is not really the place for you. That I experienced that in some ways as a brand of loss. Um, maybe there's a fear, a scarcity kind of thought that goes through me around that. And I'm wondering whether it's confidence or what would you describe it as that it allows you to say, no, it's really not for you and that's okay. I don't feel like that means my product is short or you're wrong. It just means this is not the right match. Well, you do it all the time. You're just doing it in a different place or at a different scale. Hmm. Everyone here who has succeeded at anything, no matter how small, has done it by serving the smallest viable audience. And we are comfortable doing it at a very small scale. So if you're a comedian and someone in the audience yells at you in Italian, you're not funny because you're speaking in English. You don't feel bad because you're a comedian who works in English. Right. Right. right, right. You, have, you don't feel bad one bit for saying mm -hmm. this is not a good show for people who don't understand English. Right. Okay. Right. right. So, or, you know, if you're, a, a boy scout and you're helping an old lady across the street and it turns out she's not an old lady and she's running a marathon you don't feel bad she doesn't need your help that's that. so what i discovered when i started is i was trying to make average stuff for average people because that's what all the pressure was mm -hmm. everyone mm -hmm. pushes you to do that mm -hmm. and i discovered how hard it is to do that and how little pleasure i got out of doing it mm. and ever since then i've said I'd rather matter to someone. I'd rather matter to someone. I've not heard you phrase it that way. It's interesting because I was just about to ask about the long tail of it all and the and the the idea that actually no, I'm not, I'm actually consciously not going for the big part of the bell. I'm consciously saying that there may be a handful of people out there, but they are gonna get this. How do people apply that more broadly in life? If I'm going to be a linchpin at work, I'm going to be this, I'm going to be that. How do I start to identify that? How do I start to shape that? How do I say I need to be speaking to X or Y in terms of psychographics or otherwise? So here's the mistake that most freelancers and small business people make. They hear what you and I just said, and then they make pretty average stuff for people on the long tail, right? <laughs> If you're looking for right. someone who can help you speak French, not so well, for a pretty good price, that would be me. Like, that, that's not the long tail. That's nothing. There has to be raving fans, even if there's only 10 of them. Yeah. So when, when, the way it works in business school is they give you cases. And the cases are 15, 20 pages long. The last five or 10 pages are all spreadsheets where you can do a lot of math. Okay. The first few pages are personality driven. The professor has a problem every class which mm -hmm. is she has to navigate a conversation with 60 people that gets to a punchline of the case. Because if everyone in the class is sitting there saying nothing, it's not going to work. If everyone says mm -hmm. the same thing, it's not going to work. Mm -hmm. And I also had a problem, which is I don't like spreadsheets and I didn't want to spend the time because it's six, seven, 12 hours of prep to get the spreadsheets right 
So I decided I was only going to read the first three pages of the case. Okay. I wasn't even going to open the spreadsheet part. I was just going to be the specialist for the personalities. And I was going to be really good at that because I wasn't mm-hmm. going to spend any of my time on the mm-hmm. other. So it became very clear to the professors within, you know, three classes that if they wanted to embarrass me, it was really easy, but they got no points for embarrassing me. Mm-hmm. But what they also discovered was if they needed someone who would crack this thing wide open with some sort of non sequitur about the personalities involved, they mm-hmm. should call on me. And that's the only thing I was good at in business school. The fact that it was also the easiest way for me to get through business school was a bonus. What I'm getting at is if you're going to do a thing, you got to do it specifically and really, really, really well. Mm-hmm. You can't just do it specifically and mediocre because mm-hmm. that's not enough. How much of that specificity was there for, for from you back in business school, but you just hadn't gone down this road yet. And how much of it is developed over time where you've seen, ah, that's my, that's my, quickly, I'll share that when I first started doing stand up, I like, um, Lewis Black. I like, you know, I like that kind of like tirade Like I just, it cracks me up. It just <laughs> crushes me every time. But what I learned is I'm not. I'm not a big guy, but I'm not a small guy either. I've got this hair going on. I'm a black guy, frankly. Me on a stage ranting is scary to certain audiences. And like, you know, it it just didn't play for me. And I learned that, ah, but when I do frustration, I get to be angry. But frustration is the world's overpowering me. And all of a sudden, they don't feel like I'm going to come charging off the stage. They feel like they can have a laugh. Okay, so that's that short for it. So... Where, where, which part of this was what you set out with saying, this is the stuff I find funny and it's kind of worked throughout. And which part of this is you going, ah, but when I do frustration, they love it. First of all, it breaks my heart that, um, you have to make a choice like that because of your skin color. That's just wrong. Yeah. I had to make choices like that because of my ADD and my weirdness. And I got to work and I realized that like I was doing stuff at work that was just wonky and and odd mm. and it was just too hard for me to be more like jim than jim was jim was handsome jim spoke better than me and he knew how to sit quietly in a meeting and i couldn't do any of those things mm-hmm. so i was like well i'm either just going to get drummed out of this place or i'm going for it and i just decided to be really good at being me but then once i got enough momentum there were all these opportunities for me to, you know, become more like Tom Peters or Simon Sinek or people who, Malcolm Gladwell, who sell 10 to 20 times as many copies of their books as I do. And by that point, I was like, yeah, but I sort of like this. And part of it was resistance because I didn't want all the stuff that came with having that size of a bestseller. But most of it was knowing that mattering to a few people was going to get me a better life and satisfaction for yeah. them and for me than mattering a little to a lot of people. Yeah. And it's powerful and it works. And, you know, for me, I just, you know, you meant a lot to me when I started this and, and, as, and as we've gone, one of the ways that you've mattered in a specific way is what you just mentioned ADD. And as you know, about a little over a year and a half ago, actually on January 6th, uh, 2021, totally nondescript day that no one's ever going to remember. Um, <laughs> I got, <laughs> but I, I had, I was assessed 
or myself with ADHD. And I shared that with you and asked how you thought that played into the work that you've done, some of which you just shared. And you shared with me a distinction that's really helped me to think about this in new ways, which is to think of it as a description as opposed to a diagnosis. And that feels so right, especially in the midst of a conversation on a podcast that promises to help you do you better. I'm wondering, well, when you found out that, okay, officially, it's not just that I'm different than Jim, but there's this description, but then how you've been able to leverage it. Because that that strikes me as a part of the grief piece too, is like, all right, this is a thing. (laughs) Probably, you know, for me, I found myself going, would have been nice to know. And that's tough. But then I found myself also going, ah, but the hyper-focus thing, I've been using that and now I know I can use it. So yeah, I'm wondering how that's played out for you. So there's a book, I can't remember the title or the author, about ADD and it talks about hunters and farmers. 25,000 years ago, mm-hmm. most of the successful people on earth were hunters. And what you needed to be a hunter was most of the day just looking around, but every once in a while, hyper-focusing, noticing small changes in patterns, being able to engage with a problem with nothing else, taking your time and attention, mm-hmm. and then back off duty. Whereas farmers need to have an enormous amount of patience and sit around for a very long time watching corn grow. And Mm. we only invented farming 10,000 years ago. And the farmers have taken over many industries. But that's what public school does. It trains people to be farmers. Mm -hmm. And if you have this definition, this description of ADD, what they're saying to you is, you're a hunter in a farmer's world. And you should find a way to make a living, a way to spend your days where you get rewarded for the Mm. things you're good at. As opposed to saying, my boss in this current moment is forcing me to do this thing. Add value a different way, right? And I'm not minimizing somebody who is way off on some end of some spectrum. What I'm saying is everyone in the world that we lived in was just like us. We wouldn't feel any social pressure that we were, but that's never going to be the case. Everyone is always going to be in a world where not everyone is like them. Right. So pick your thing. And this is why reading comic books as a kid is so useful because if Mm. you think about the Fantastic Four, the X-Men or any of these people, each one brings a different skill to the problem. That's right. And that's how they solve the problem. There are no all tuba orchestras because they would sound terrible. You need a clarinet and a violin Mm. and a xylophone or it doesn't sound right. Right, right. And the power of understanding that there's a right place and a piece of music for the tuba. Yeah. And being right for that. No, I I love that piece. I just wanted to, uh, and I'm not going to ask because I've learned from somebody very wise around podcasting. (laughs) What piece of advice? No, but but, but I would like to ask this, which is how do you support people in your life who are grieving? Whether it's grieving the loss of a person or a pet, whether it's grieving the business that didn't work out, some of the things that we touched on here, even for me, you know, grieving this diagnosis and, oh, what does this mean? And what does it cost me? And all these things. What are some of the ways that you reach out and and sort of support people in that that way? Because I feel like I see you or I experience you doing it. Wow. That's very kind of you. you. You know, you've brought up grieving a few times, and I think it's a really fascinating way to think about the world. Um, But as is my want, let me try to divide grieving into two categories. Mm -hmm. I believe that there are many species, including humans, that grieve at a biological, cellular level. Mm -hmm. 
They don't have vocabulary. They don't speak. Dogs grieve, right? So when a human is doing that sort of grieving, Mm -hmm. there is a rewiring that is going on in their brain. Mm -hmm. And I think we need to give them space and we need to give them support and they need to feel seen. But mostly we need patience because it is an organic process that is going to happen whenever it's going to happen. There's a second kind of thing you're calling grieving, which is based on the narrative that you have. It is not the organic grieving mm. that a chimpanzee might feel. It is a grieving that can only be felt by someone who has a story that has now collided with the rest of the world, mm. right? So you trained for four years to be Miss America, and you didn't win the pageant. So right. you're feeling something inside. Right. Well, in those cases, you have a story problem. You don't mm. have a chemistry problem. Okay. And if your story were different, you would feel fine because mm-hmm. it's constantly going back and reminding yourself of the story that's keeping that bad feeling going. And so part of what I've tried to do in my work, influenced by Pema Chodron, influenced by Zig Ziglar, mm-hmm. is how do we rewire the story? Not with reassurance, not for solace, but because different people will tell a different story and have a different um, narrative going forward. And, you know, if we think about what happens if someone competes in the Olympics, mm. whether win or lose, you don't get to be in the Olympics anymore. Right. Maybe you get to go one more time, but then you're sure. done, mm-hmm. right? So you could then spend the rest of your life, that's 75 more years, grieving for the fact that you're not an Olympian anymore, or you could mm. tell yourself a different story. Right. And so I picked that absurd example there because almost none of us are Olympians. But the same thing is true, whether it's a book that didn't sell or a job you didn't get or Mm -hmm. somebody you didn't get to date anymore. Right. These are stories. And if the story is helping you, say it again loud and proud. If the story isn't helping you, figure out why you want to be trapped in that cycle and what other story you could live so that you could it could reinforce you on where you want to go. Yeah. Thank you. I mean, so many gems, as you can imagine, haven't gotten to know me a little bit. I've got 35 other questions and I'm like, ask them this, ask them that. But, uh, <laughs> but, but we, we have a, we have a limit. And, and I, and I do want to thank you so much for your time, your generosity. I want to thank you for the podcasting workshop and TMS and all NBA, which I'm about to start and, uh, War of Art is top of the list. So I'll actually get to, to dig into that directly. But, um, I guess what I'd like to, to, to share in a specific way is that I appreciate that you've helped me to value the ways in which I am different in a way that's different than I had my entire life. And I'd say over the past two years, the reason why I've moved forward in a way that dwarfed the 10 years that preceded it was that rather than figuring out, well, what is it? And the consultant look like and what does a podcaster look like that you have consistently encouraged me directly and indirectly to say, no, 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 wrong question. What does it look like when Orlando podcasts? What does it look like when Orlando runs a business? And so just thank you so much. And thanks for being here. And uh, folks, please, please, please check out the blog, check out the books, check out all of it. This is marketing will blow your mind. Um, Yeah, just uh, so many things that I've taken in from you and appreciated. And thanks so much, Seth. Well, thank you. I have benefited more from knowing you than you have from knowing me. So thank you so much. Wow. That means a lot. That means a lot. All right. Take care. We'll talk soon. Be well. Bye-bye. 
All right, y'all, it's time to walk the line. When it comes to Unstuck AF, fam, we don't talk about it. We be about it. So here's your walk the line for episode one of season three. That's right, season three. Thank each and every one of you who has downloaded, listened, subscribed, shared, or supported Unstuck AF in any way. I am so proud and so excited to bring more of the humor and heart of our amazing guests. Here's your walk the line. Make your freedom count. I have learned so much from Seth Godin. I hope this episode gave you a glimpse into why I respect him so much. But I have never heard him frame the work we all do around the very idea of freedom. That truly impacted me. I got to thinking, how do I make my freedom count? Well, one way I do that is this podcast. My offering to each and all of you who listen. But what I want to know is how do you make your freedom count? What are you doing for others? What are you doing for yourself? How are you making the world a better place? How are you making your world a better place? The world can be a complicated place, man, and no doubt some of us are more free than others. But here is a simple truth. We all have some freedom. So here's the question I want us each to answer. How will I make my freedom count? I hope some of you make it count by swinging through our online community, We Align, at wealign.alignp.com. Visit the Align Performance Facebook page. Follow Align P on IG and Twitter. And if you like what you just heard, be sure to like, rate, review, subscribe, and or follow on Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Amazon Music, wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, we gonna get unstuck. We gonna be unstuck. We gonna live unstuck. Unstuck as fuck. Now, let's walk the line.